Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we've just got, I guess that would be six verses to look at this morning. We're in a series entitled Timeless, and the, how the, the eternal church is greater than the shifting culture. And the idea behind this series was, was looking in, uh, not just at a shifting world or a shifting culture, when truth is relative, culture will always shift, but it's not just observing that, it's also an observation of seeing the church. And when I say the church, I don't mean ours, I mean like the church internationally shifting to culture. And so this series is a reminder to us that there is an eternal God who proclaims an eternal gospel through his eternal uh, truth or eternal church, that there are eternal truths, values from the scriptures that can't be ignored, that can't be replaced. And so we're reexamining these and the call of the church, our church, to hold on to this and to be the church that Jesus came to plant. And so in order to do that, we're studying the seven letters written to the seven churches in the onset of the book of Revelation. And uh, we're looking at one letter each week. And so this is week three, the third letter written to the church in Pergamum. Now, Pergamum uh, was a capital city of a large area of the Roman Empire. And because of that, they had the ability or the power to execute. And their chosen form of execution was the sword. And so the reference made early on to the martyrdom of Antipas uh, was uh, an execution that uh, apparently many of the Christians in Pergamum had seen. They saw Antipas, their fellow believer, get, get murdered or martyred right in front of them. So imagine what that would do to you, what that would do to your family as, if you were a follower of Christ and, uh, and one was just pulled out and right in front of you, slaughtered by the state. And so this is what had happened in Pergamum. Now in Pergamum also was the most ornate, the most expensive and the largest altar in the world at that time. It was an altar to Zeus. It was massive and it was really expensive. And once a year, there would be a festival. And in the festival, the entire town would participate in, uh, in a ceremony. And, and as they would participate, there would be dancing and, uh, and there would be uh, this entire procedure. And at the end of the procedure, uh, there would be uh, um, meat that would be on the altar uh, that was sacrificed to Zeus and people would partake in eating of the meat. And to not participate in this ceremony, in this um, cultural activity, this cultural norm in Pergamum would make you a great outcast. And so, of course, Christian or not Christian, you would participate in the activity. And many did. This is why Jesus writes the letter to the church here. And he's going to commend them. And the first reason he's going to, going to commend them or the reason he gives for commending them is, is, is you were faced with death. You were faced with execution. You saw Antipas get murdered in, in front of you and yet you did not abandon your faith. You didn't give in. Great job. Uh, faced with execution. 
You stood strong. And we have heard much even in the previous two letters about persecution that the church faced and, and how the Christians were, were staying strong in the midst of persecution. And this is happening here again. And last week, I asked the question, like, how committed are you to this gospel? Uh, the text like, demands that question and makes you evaluate for a second, like, how committed am I really to this gospel? Like, like to the point of death? Like you, like, are you committed to the gospel to the point of death? And I, and I, I believe that, uh, that, that, that many Christians, and that if somebody came in here today and, and threatened, like you have to renounce Christ or you'll, you'll lose your life, that, that many of us would say, yes, take my life. I am committed to Jesus. I hope that would be true for you. But let me propose that what this letter is teaching us is that sometimes it is easier to say I would die for Christ than it is to live for him, uncompromised. That it is easier to say, yeah, take my life. I will not renounce the name of Christ. It is easier to do that than it is to hear biblical teaching and then to repent and change and actually live for Jesus. And the church in Pergamum was faithful to the point of death, but compromised in the way that they lived. And so Jesus, remember, Jesus is the one who through the spirit gave these letters to John. So really what we have here are Jesus's final words to his church. Jesus looks in at the church who said, we're willing to die for you commends them. And then it takes a, takes a turn. He says, ah, but I do have this against you. And as you begin to study these two verses here, 14 and 15, what you see that Christ has against this church is they are no longer living an uncompromised life for Christ. They have begun to compromise their faith. There's always a pressure to compromise. Culture will always put a pressure on the church to compromise. That is true, and there's part of that in here. But what's interesting is when Jesus reserves his harshest words in the text, he's not talking about a culture that is trying to get the church to compromise. He's talking about factions within the church that have compromised. And Jesus' harshest words in this particular text are are two uh, members of the church at Pergamum who have allowed compromise to settle in. And he gives them striking warning at the end. Repent, or I will cut you off with the sword. Jesus actually makes references to two swords. And a lot of commentators think that Jesus is actually kind of making a joke, like, like my sword is stronger than the sword of Rome. Like, that's why he's bringing that up. Like, like you're scared of the sword of the Roman execution. No, you should be more scared of, of mine. Now, why do we compromise? Why do we compromise? And what does compromise in the church look like? The text gives us two types of compromise 
And we can see it right here. It says, I have a few things against you. You have some who, have, uh, who hold the, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. This is a reference to the Old Testament, uh, but the, the truth is, is New Covenant, New Testament as well, and just as modern now as it was back then. And the first type of compromise is this, to allow bad teaching to sneak into the church that produces bad action or habits. To allow bad teaching to, 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 to become common, uh, whether it's from the pulpit or it's from anywhere else. Now, what is bad teaching? Bad teaching is in anything, in any way that compromises the, the truth, the foundational truths of Scripture. Bad teaching is anything that diminishes Christ or tries to change who he is. Bad teaching uh, is anything that would add anything to salvation that isn't just Christ, uh, Christ alone, uh, saved by grace through faith. A bad teaching then would also be anything that, that when it is taught or communicated would, would say to the reader or, or the listener um, that, that the, the standards of scripture are no longer important or valid. This is bad teaching. Now, there are reasons that bad teaching becomes prevalent in the body or in the church. Let me give you a couple of them. And the first is this, because we think that, 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 that bad teaching or compromised teaching will decrease conflict. And so compromise begins to settle in around or on teaching. And, and the idea behind it is if we just compromise on these truths, if we just kind of push to a middle ground on, on these truths, then it'll decrease conflict. It'll decrease conflict with culture and it'll decrease conflict within the body. And so compromise settles in uh, for the sake of unity or harmony. Now I'm not talking about uh, um, like third level doctrines where, where there can be a sense of we can live within the tension of post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, right? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. I'm talking about the core truths of scripture, the core values laid out in the Bible and, and, and compromise settles in to, to produce unity. Christian Unity, void of proper doctrine, isn't Christian unity because it isn't Christian. It might be unity, but it's not Christian unity. Christian unity is centered on, on the, true, the true doctrine of Scripture. So it may decrease conflict with the world. It may decrease conflict with the church, but it will increase conflict with Christ. So you pick who you would rather be in conflict with, Christ or culture? Christ or factions in the body? Second reason why bad teaching then will uh, find its way into, into bodies is this. We think through compromised teaching that we can enlarge the audience or the circle. So the idea behind this is um, um, just lower the, the standard, lower the level, lower, uh, you know, lower the bar, and, and so then we'll allow more people to enter in, and then once we get them in, then we'll teach them and grow them up. 
It, it's actually a pretty good or interesting or intriguing theory. It just happens to be unbiblical. When we compromise truth to enlarge the circle, all we're doing is enlarging a circle that at the end gets cut off. Let me explain it this way. Uh, sometimes in language, you'll hear things like this, like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, and what that means might be like, I went to this Christmas Eve service once like nine years ago and I raised a hand because it was a pretty emotional, <laughs> inspiring event. Or I'm a Christian because I'm an American. Or I'm a Christian because I, I grew up one. Or I'm a Christian because fill in the blank. But that whole idea of like growing up in Christ or discipleship or any of that, like I'm not at that level, but I am at the level that like stepped across the line, so I'm okay for eternity. You know, in the Bible, there is never a distinction between disciples, which is somebody who pledges their life to the following of a particular teacher. That's what a disciple is. There's never a distinction between disciples and Christians. In fact, the term Christian was just a label that was used to describe disciples. Said another way, in the scriptures, the only followers of Jesus were disciples, people who had pledged their life to a worldview, to a perspective, to a following of Christ, to a teaching, and wherever it may lead. And then at some point, people said, let's call them Christians. But over the years, and there's been a lot of years from that moment, what happened is, 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 is we began to call anybody who professed some slight like affection for Jesus or interest in, um, in Jesus, like we just called them Christians. And then we said, and then there's some people that once we get them saved, we'll grow them up and then they'll be called disciples. Distinction does not exist in the Bible. There are just disciples, which are people who, who heard about the gospel and it exploded in their heart. And they said, this is worth everything. Like examples that are given are like somebody would sell everything they have if, if the gospel was a field and they would go and they would buy the field and like it was just worth their entire life and existence. Like the very breath in our lungs. And so to diminish or to compromise on the truth of scripture so as to enlarge the circle if that only produces enlarging a compromised circle, that's not actually effective. In fact, I would say it's antithetical to the point because a lot of times once people think, okay, I must be okay, then they turn off a desire for Christ. Like when Christ says that he will say to some, I never knew you. But I thought I was in the circle. And so compromise that, that leads to a diminished gospel doesn't help us get people into the, the saving circle here. And, and by the way, 
arrogance around, like, I'm in this circle doesn't make any sense because we're saved by grace. So those of us who find ourselves within, within like, the, the, uh, the covenant community, within the, the church, the only thing we can do is say, well, God, I don't know how I ended up here, but thank you. Christ goes on to say, like, like once you've been so humbled to realize that you've, you've gotten in, right, because, because of grace, not because of you, then your desire then is to just look at everyone else and go, oh, they need to be in too because I'm no better than they are. Third reason, sometimes that, um, that, that compromised teaching can enter into the church or into the body is because the congregation itself and this could, of course, be a, a pastor too, doesn't have a good enough grasp on good teaching, right doctrine, that bad doctrine can easily slip in. I was reminded this week, uh, listening to a podcast on my primary function as pastor. Paul writes about it in Colossians, to present the body fully mature in Christ that that's my primary job. That in the end, I will get evaluated not on how big was the meaningless circle. Not did your people like coming to church on Sunday morning? I hope you do. Not were you good at, at getting people to step into being a cog in the wheel of industrial church? I won't get evaluated on that. I will, like my job is to present the body fully mature in Christ. And that, uh, Paul says right before then, that, that the way you do that is just by proclaiming Jesus. And I want to add to that then, like teaching properly, good doctrine. That the two paths then to this, like us becoming fully mature in Christ, you becoming fully mature in Christ. First, I have a responsibility, and that is to, to preach Jesus each and every Sunday. To preach and proclaim the gospel each and every Sunday. That through gospel-centered, biblical teaching, that you would grow up more fully mature in Christ. That's my job. But then that you have one too. And that is to, to, to own your faith and to, and to deepen your understanding of Scripture. I'll say this, uh, 2021, next year, if we make it, 2021 will be the year of the most focused discipleship effort that we have ever made as a body. Like for you to grow up into Christ. For there are many of you in this body who, who are ready to be released into um, discipling others. There are many of you, and I can take responsibility because for some of you have been pastoring for years, who, who are still, uh, as Paul would say, drinking milk when you need to be eating meat. There's a growth that needs to happen. And that when that growth occurs amongst the entire body, that we can remain uncompromised. Oh, and the stakes are high because at the end, Jesus comes down and he says, I'm just going to cut off the compromised from the uncompromised. 
So that was compromise number one. It's, it's bad teaching that leads to bad practice. Compromise number two, we see more in this uh, line here. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, this is more the effect of the teaching. Uh, Balak, uh, if I jump up a verse, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Um, compromise number two is this. Participating in pagan, I'm going to use the word pagan, anti-Christian culture, or a bigger word is antinomianism. The idea that because I'm free in Christ, I can do whatever I want, regardless if it's sinful or not. Paul addressed this briefly in Romans when he said, some of you are like, you're getting angry about this grace thing and you think grace in this way is just a freedom to sin. Of course it isn't, right? The, the, the idea here in the second compromise is that the, the life of the Christ follower gets so blurry from the life of a non-Christ follower that sometimes you, you look and you go, I don't actually see any difference. Now, of course, over the years, the pendulum has swung and swung this way and swung that, that way. And sometimes it gets really weird. Like, if you're a Christian, you can't play cards, right? Like some of you probably grew up in that. You know cards, right? Satan's tool thing. Okay. And, and, so, and then sometimes what we do then is, is, is we, we come up because we don't want to live compromised lives. And so we come up with these like values that we have on this. And then we pass those on and like four generations down, we don't understand why they, why they exist. We just know I can't do this. And so that's not the solution, right? To just pass things down without, without like teaching the why underneath. But what's going on here in Pergamum, what's going on is that the Christians have begun to engage in the pagan culture just like all of the non-Christians. And so in particular, what that meant was this big festival at the altar. And so, so hey, are you going to, uh, to the festival? Well, yeah, I'm going to the festival. Of course I'm going to the festival. So you're going to go to the festival and you're going to get dressed up and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And then you're going to get up to the altar at the very end. And, and just like everyone else, then you're going to eat the food that's sacrificed to the idols that's on the altar to Zeus. And you're going to eat it just like everyone else. Yeah, of course I'm going to do that. And Jesus is looking in, he's going, whoa, you're worshiping something other than me. And it seems like the Christian response was like, yeah, but I'm just like everyone else. And maybe this is the phrase that hints when we've fallen into this, when we start using lines like, well, yeah, but I'm just like everyone else. Christian, the goal is not to be just like everyone else. The aim is to be strikingly different because the gospel has compelled you to transformation. This doesn't mean we have to run around telling people, you can't do this if you're a real Christian. You can't do that if you're a real Christian. What it means is that he who has ears to hear when the Holy Spirit is speaking, when the Holy Spirit is moving in your life, that you respond to that. And if you've been growing up in Christ, you know that there used to be things that you did that didn't bother you, but you've matured in such a way now that you look at that thing and it's now detestable to you. It's a sign of maturity. Sometimes the opposite is there used to be things that were detestable to you. 
And now you just walk in. And you've just turned the volume down on the Holy Spirit. And you've come up with every reason why it's okay. And yeah, I could list a bunch of examples why it's okay to talk like that, why it's okay to post like that, to date like that, to fill in the blank. And again, the line between what it means to be a Christ follower or not, it, it, it's like it really doesn't make any difference. He brings up a couple, the idol worship. And with the idol worship, what he's bringing up there was, again, as they were engaging in this whole practice. And at the end, you ate the food. And he's just looking, he's saying, at some point, you're, Jesus is saying, like, like engaging in all of that activity, just like everyone else's, is, is an issue. Second thing he brings up is sexual immorality. I've brought this up before. There was a study done a couple of years ago on why all of these guys were dropping out of seminary. And they were taking surveys. And um, they found that the reason so many of them were dropping out of seminary wasn't because, wasn't because they didn't believe anymore. It wasn't because um, they didn't want to go into ministry. The reason they found out what was happening here is the, the pull to sex was so strong that they were willing to abandon their faith for it. In fact, I would suggest that for many people, many people to say, I'll die for Jesus. I'll die for Jesus is an easier statement than to say, I will live for Christ sexually pure. And the gamut of this, of course, is, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. And if you're like, well, I don't know what sexually pure means. Well, let me tell you. Man, woman, marriage. That's the biblical standard of sex. Man, woman, marriage. Anything outside of that is not the biblical standard. Anything outside of that is a compromise to the biblical standard. And so Jesus is looking at this church and it's like, guys, I know you'll die for me, but will you live? Will you live for me? According to the standard. How do we know if compromise is settled in? How do we know? I want to give you three ways. I think these are helpful. The first way we might know that we've begun to compromise is when you hear phrases like this. Well, yeah, but not me because blank. The other day, I was having a conversation with somebody and, and I said something about them that I think was very true. And then they said, I think that, but. And I said, then you don't think it. If there's a but on the end of it, then you don't think it. And when we begin to use phrases like, well, yeah, but not me or not us, because it's a sign 
the compromise has begun to settle in. Another sign that compromise perhaps has begun to settle in is when you're avoiding scripture. Because scripture is also called the sword of the spirit. It's told that it cuts to our hearts. And one of the sure signs that compromise has begun to settle in our lives is when we say, well, I'm just gonna stay away from it because I don't want it to tell me that I'm wrong. I'm not gonna go to church I'm not going to read, I'm not going to listen, I'm just going to avoid. By the way, friend, if that's you, can I tell you something? That's a sign to me that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in you. You're intentionally fighting against him, but he's there. He's there. Third, indicator that we might be um, falling into compromises, early excuses, early excuses. And maybe the best way to describe this is, is like through just like a, like a physical display. Like, like if this was like the line of sin, right? This was like the line of sin and we're over here. Often what we do is uh, we make an early excuse. And what it does is, is, is we broach the line that we knew was wrong, but we throw like this other line out there and then we just keep making little early excuses. And then eventually we're like at this point where we're like, we think that's still the line of being sinful or bad, but we cross the line like however long ago, but we just keep moving it through these early excuses. And maybe, maybe you think this sermon is too harsh. Maybe the sermon is exactly what you haven't liked church. And I'm just going to tell you, your problem is not with me. Your problem is not with me. Because Jesus, he gives only one out to compromise. He doesn't give four different options. He gives one out to compromise. And here it is. Therefore, repent. Repent. Stop. Change. Don't compromise. It's his only out. Therefore, repent. Listen, the world wants you to compromise and conform. Jesus wants you to repent and run away. If your heart is true, then when truth is presented, you will want to respond in repentance. Conviction is the indication of the spirit. Complacency is the indication of deep-seated compromise. Let me say it more clearly. If your sin doesn't wreck you, you need a moment of reflection. And listen, friend, the question is not like, have you sinned or how did you sin? I don't care. The thought here is is not like, who's the worst of us? 
What I'm not concerned about this morning at all is like what your particular sin is and let's compare it to somebody else's. What I'm not concerned about this morning is is figuring out if there's any like hidden secret dark sins that we need to know about. What I am concerned about is that if your heart does not scream, repent, 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 when you're in sin, that you might be in the wrong circle. And I know, I know that none of us here on this earth will be perfect. And I know that all of us have sin in our life that we look back and regret. And there is only one path forward, and it isn't compromise. It's repent, repent, repent. And I will take... And I'll say, I will take because Jesus takes. Jesus elevates the dirty sinner who's willing to repent over the moralistic, do good, looks good person who's so prideful that they don't think there's anything wrong. And so I would much, much more stand with the dirty sinner who's willing to repent than the moralistic person who thinks that their good behavior makes them the right or the good type of Christian. And here's here's the fun part, guys. Look how Jesus ends this one. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, what he's saying is, he who has the Holy Spirit, listen up, repent. To the one who conquers or to the one who does, to the one who doesn't compromise or to the one who will repent when they do compromise, I will give some of the hidden manna. You know what that is? That is power and provision. He says, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know what that is? That is a personal plan. So Jesus looks and he says, listen, listen, listen. If you've compromised, okay, just repent. And when you do, you will know a power and a provision. You will know a personal connection with me unlike you've had before. So just repent. We make repentance. This And listen, I have known the lamenting of the soul. And I hope you have too. I have known what it is to wake up, to, to, to be filled with the knowledge of my sin, and to lament. And I hope you have too. But I have also known the joy and the freedom that comes from repentance. See, the end result of repentance is not just lamentation. The end result of repentance is a joy and a freedom. 
And so repentance, though deep, repentance, though somewhat heavy, the most beautiful part of repentance is the joy and the freedom on the other side of it, my friend. And that is what I long for you to have. And in this text, it is found through an uncompromised commitment to the truth of scripture. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.